Good morning, everyone. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. We've spent the last several months talking about discipleship, talking about all different aspects of discipleship. And uh, it's been very informative to me. It's been challenging to me. And we've been uh, really encouraged to see the response from people actually stepping up and saying, hey, I, I want to disciple people, or uh, how do you do that, or I need to be discipled. We, we've seen a lot of that, and so we've been, we've been really encouraged about that. And, uh, and so it, it's, it's been an encouraging time, and as we've looked at discipleship, we've looked at all these different aspects of it. We've looked at, uh, at what discipleship is, at the reasons for it. Uh, we've looked at how central and important a thing it is for the church uh, it's been it's uh, it's been a neat study for me personally. We've looked at examples of discipleship from various places in the New Testament, and so today, as I attempt to wrap up that months long study, I wanted to uh, take us to a passage that I think will give us a handle on something we can take away. That's going to uh, be an identifier or be something that we can keep in our minds that will help to motivate us, help to encourage us and, and remind us of what we studied. And so that's why I've, I've come to this passage. We're going to be looking at a prayer of Paul's from the book of Ephesians for the Christians in Ephesus. And, uh, and the, the heart of his prayer is the heart of the message that I want us to, uh, to take away. So I, I trust that the Lord has something for us this morning. I want to start reading in Ephesians chapter 3. I'm going to read 14 through 19. For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being. That Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Let's pray. Father, this morning we come to a very important passage and we come to a very important point in the study that we've been doing on discipleship. Lord, I pray that you would help us even now to glean from your word what you would have for us. I pray that your spirit would move in our midst, that we would have our, uh, the, our eyes opened to what you have for us that we would be sensitive, that we would be responsive to you. I pray that you would speak to us this morning. Again, Lord, I pray that you would set aside the distractions, that you would help us to focus, focus on what you have for us. Lord, speak to us. Use this time in your word to mold and shape and encourage and build up and equip your people. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat> All right, so our first two verses here, we're going to look at 14 and 15. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. 
from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named. And so my first question is, for what reason? For what reason? And uh, so I, if you look up at three one, chapter 3 and verse 1, you see that he starts that paragraph the same way. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard, etc. So he, he starts the same way there at three one, and then he kind of gets sidetracked by this very important subject that he wants to talk about. So he wants to spell this out. So he talks about the mystery of the gospel, particularly the mystery of the gospel going not just to Jews, but to Gentiles also. And so he spells that out. So it's a rabbit trail, and it's an enormous and a hugely important rabbit trail that he goes on. And then in 14, he picks it back up again. He's back on trail, okay? He says, for this reason. So for what reason in 3.1? We've just backed up a few verses. We don't have an answer yet. I think here's the answer. I think the answer we can find in chapter 2, verses 18 and 19. This is what's spurring his prayer. This is what is the cause for his prayer. Verses 18 and 19 of chapter 2, he says, For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you, Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. So I think what's causing him to jump into prayer, what's causing him to ask God these things is the fact that he's, he's been reminded, he's, he's, he's drawn this conclusion, he's seen that the gospel is for everybody. It's not just for one people group. It's not just for a certain few. The gospel is to go out. It's to spread beyond the bounds of Judaism, which was the main issue he was dealing with here, beyond the bounds, beyond that boundary, and to go to Gentiles. And most of us in here, being Gentiles, can praise the Lord for that. And what he's saying is God has opened up and made salvation available. This is an enormous thing. And so God, who's the father of all families, is the one he's praying to. And so the gospel is for everyone, Jew and Gentile. And I don't know what people groups we have in our minds what distinctions we have in our minds. Ah, the gospel is not for that guy. He is way too lost. Or, uh, you know, I just really don't like that person. I'm not sure I could bring myself to stand there and talk to them about love or whatever. The gospel is for all. It's for those people too. It's for those people too. And so Paul bows in prayer to the father of all peoples, Jews and Gentiles, to intercede for them regarding how they should grow together into this new faith how they should grow together. And so our question for us today is how we together can grow in this faith that we have, how we can grow. And so first of all, we need to understand what is true inner strength, true inner strength, the first point in your outline there. I put that in there because in our day and age, we talk a lot, I think, about inner strength. And it can mean a lot of different things depending upon what channel you're watching depending upon what website you're on. It can mean all manner of stuff, inner strength. Does it just mean uh, fortitude? Does it just mean willpower? Does it just mean having a strong mind? What does it mean? What is true inner strength? And so I want to look at true inner strength from our passage here from Paul's perspective. So reading in verse 16, again, he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power, through his spirit in your inner being. 
that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. Now, when I was reading through this, and actually we were talking about this in Sunday school this morning, that passage there, that words there where he says, according to the riches of his glory, he's going to do this thing. He's, he's saying that it's proportionate to God's glory, that he's able to strengthen. Can he, can he just give you a little strength or can he give you all manner of strength in proportion to his glory? And so I was thinking about that and trying to, trying to understand it myself. And I, I thought of, uh, uh, Christmas Carol by Dickens, right? And you think of Ebenezer Scrooge. He was rich, right? Rich guy. He was rich in the beginning and he's rich at the end, right? But when did he begin to give according to his riches? If, if he had given some money in the very beginning of the story, remember he had all kinds of riches, right? He was rich. If he had given some money to Tiny Tim, let's say, for example, would it have been according to his riches? You all know the story. He was a, a miser, right? He, he loved his money. He counted his, his money and he didn't want anyone else to have any. And, and the idea of him giving to someone would have been anathema to him, right? But imagine that he had given a penny to Tiny Tim, right? So he gave out of his riches, he gave one penny out of his riches. Is that according to his riches? No, it's not according to his riches. Now, remember at the end of the story, the end of the story, he's running around lavishing gifts on people. He, at the end, is giving according to his riches. He's super wealthy, and he's giving super wealthy gifts. And so that helps me to think that God doesn't just have this huge storehouse of strength or encouragement or whatever, and he ekes out a tiny little portion to you. And he, he, he gave to you out of his storehouse, and you got one little itty-bitty crumb out of what was in his storehouse. That's not what's being said here. He gives to us according to his riches, according to his riches, and his, the riches of his glory, that's massive. And so the gift that he gives, the strength that he provides is massive. It's massive. It's going to build through this passage just how large it is. But the point is that it's proportionate to his glory. How great is his glory? How great is his glory? You read over and over in the Old Testament about his glory, about it shining forth, right? It, it tanned Moses' face or made it glow maybe, right? And it was, it was so great that when Moses asked God on the mountain, Lord, let me see your glory, what did God do? He said, you can go hide behind the, the rock over there when I pass by or it'll, it'll fry you. My glory is too great. You can't behold it. It's too great. It's immense. It's beyond measure. It's beyond measure. And God strengthens us in proportion to that glory. It's huge. And that's the strengthening that he offers. So what's the point? Well, are you weak? Are you weak? Are you in need of strengthening? Need some strength in your life to carry on? Maybe you need endurance. You've been fighting this thing, and you just need some endurance to continue on. He has ample provision for you, ample strength to give you for that. Father is able to meet any any need that you not, might have. He's not a miser. He gives abundant strength to his children, proportionate to his own glory, and he does so through his Holy Spirit. Through his Holy Spirit. 
I want to read uh, just a couple of verses for you. You'll find when you read through the New Testament that when the Holy Spirit is mentioned very often, power is mentioned in the same sentence. Those two are connected again and again and again. I just want to read two examples for you. Acts 1.8. Probably you know it by heart. Acts 1.8. But you will receive power when? When the Holy Spirit has come upon you. Power and the Spirit are connected. Or 1 Corinthians 2, 4 through 5. Paul says, my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the, in the power of God. And so there's a close connection here. And you know what? We, we have the Spirit living within us. We have His Holy Spirit living within us, and He uses His Spirit as an agent to strengthen us, to give us what we need in life. God's abundant supply of strength comes through the agency of His Holy Spirit. Another way that Paul prays the same thing for them is that he prays that Christ will dwell in their hearts through faith. Now, many, probably, well, everybody who has a version other than King James or New King James, yours probably says, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. But in this one, this is a rare instance where I'm going with the King James on this one. The King James and the New King James have this much better we, uh, we, we discussed in Sunday school this morning, I pulled out the grammar word again. I always like to talk about grammar. It drives people nuts. But what's the difference between, um, let's say, between that and so that? Between that and so that? So, for example, I might say, Woody told me that today is Communion Sunday. Well, that just tells you the content of what Woody told me, Right? Woody told me that today is Communion Sunday. All right, so is Pat, that's, that's the content. What if I said, um, Woody told me so that I would serve communion? Well, so that now means for the purpose that I would do this thing. So that this thing would come about. He told me that so that I would then go and do it. So that that would be the result, right? Well, in our verse here, Here's how mine reads, starting in 16, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. It sounds like when you read mine that Christ dwelling in your hearts through faith is the result of the spiritual strengthening that comes before. But if you, if you look at the original, you see that the so that is not there. It just says that again. That again. And so I think what's happening here is it's a restatement of what came before. And why does all that matter? Why does all that matter? Well, um, here's what I, what I think is being said is that, uh, well, the question is, is Paul praying that Christ would indwell the believers? Is Paul praying that Christ would indwell the believers? Well, think about that theologically. When does... When does Christ indwell Christians? When do we become indwelt? Well, when we become believers, right? That's when we become in Christ and Christ is in us. But there's a special thing going on here. There's special language going on. The, the word that he uses here, that Christ, Christ may dwell in your hearts, doesn't just mean that he is located there. 
it means that he has come and he has put down roots. He's made himself at home. This is his place. This is where he's living. He is living there and he is active there. Okay? It's not just he exists there or that's his address, but he's really there and he's really doing stuff there. It's still not super clear. So let's flip over to John 15. I think the same thing is being discussed here. Flip over to John 15. Let's see how Jesus puts the same thing. John 15. I know this can get a little thick, but there's a payoff. Okay, so hang with me. Hang with me. John 15. This is the, uh, the vine discussion, right? So we're going to read verses 4 and 5. And again, this is Jesus talking, and he says, Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself, unless it abides in the vine... Neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine. You are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. What Jesus is saying is, you're dependent upon me. The branch is dependent upon the vine. The vine provides the life. The vine provides the juice, right? And then it's the branch that bears fruit, not because of its own effort, but because of the life that comes from the vine. Now, he says in in John 15 that it's possible for Christians to kind of be out of sync with that and not be connected. It's possible for us to live live a life that's, that's kind of distant from that, not relying on God's work in our life, not even looking for God's work in our life, right? And it's those times will be unfruitful. But he's saying here, he's praying for these, these Christians in Ephesus, praying for these people who are already believers and already have the Holy Spirit living within them, that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith, that they would be constantly walking in dependence upon Christ. This is not talking about receiving the gospel the first time. This is not talking about receiving the Holy Spirit for the first time. But instead, it's talking about walking in the Spirit, trusting in Him, looking to Him to strengthen us, looking to Him for life, trusting in Him as we go about our lives. And this is how we will be strengthened in our inner man. This is how God strengthens us when we have that attitude towards Him. You notice it's by faith. It's by faith that it happens. We're looking to Him We're dependent upon him. We're trusting him to do it. And he sets up residence in our home and he goes about working, accomplishing his work in our lives. That's what Paul means here by that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and the fruit that comes out of that, the fruit in our own lives and the fruit that other people can see, the fruit in relationships comes out of that, is born out of that trust in Christ. It's a powerful thing to me. Paul's praying for the Ephesian believers that they would look in faith to Jesus continually to meet their needs and to strengthen them in their inner person, in their heart, for the difficulties of the Christian life. He prays that Christ would dwell in their hearts through faith. And as they do that, as we do that, Christ does his own work in our hearts to will and to work for his 
good pleasure. It's the same thing Paul means in 1 Thessalonians 5. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24 says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will do it. It's him working in your life as you look to him and trust him for that, and he will do it. And so this is true inner strength. It comes from the work of the Holy Spirit in your inner being as Christ works on you from within and empowers you for the Christian life. So now we're going to turn to the unsearchable love of Christ. Love of Christ. The second half of 17 there. Back in Ephesians 3, the second half of 17 says this, that you, this is the second part of his prayer. This is the second part. The first part was the strengthening. The second part, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. The love of Christ, it's foundational. It is foundational. Listen to these other verses. Even from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 4 and 5. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. It springs from his love. Ephesians 2, 4 and 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. It was his love that motivated him to do that. And then, of course, John 3.16. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Love is foundational for all of salvation. Christ's love, God's love for us, is foundational for all of salvation. I mentioned this last week, and I mention it often because it's often on my mind that God was not in a bind when man fell into sin. He was not stuck. Oh, i got to do something. i got to do something. He was perfectly free and would have been right to destroy us. But because of his love, because of his love, he decided to act on our behalf. So that... God was never in a bind. He didn't have to come up with a solution. He decided he loved us enough to come up with a solution. He could have let things be, but he didn't. And that's when he came up with this plan, or rather presented this plan. He had the plan from before the foundation of the world. But that's when this plan goes into action, where holy God redeems sinful man to reconcile the relationship between the two and sending Christ who is holy, but also a man to pay the penalty for our sins that we could be restored in relationship with him. That is all rooted and grounded in love that springs from his love. We're talking about discipleship. That's been an issue we've been talking about. As I think about how this issue right here relates to discipleship 
I think it's an enormous part of how we disciple someone. The content that we use to disciple them is to walk them through continually the fact that holy God didn't have to save you, but he decided to because of his love for you. His love for you is immense. It's immeasurable. And as we think about what his love for us looks like and what it drove him to do, it will bring change in my own heart. The more I think about it, the more I dwell on it, the more change it brings in my own heart. And so as I'm talking with someone, discipling someone, I need to be guiding them to that and say, look at the love of Christ for us. This is what he's done. It's enormous. And you could be a Christian for a hundred years and that love would still amaze you. The more you search it out, the more there is to search out. His love, the love of Christ, is foundational for all of the Christian life. It's also boundless. It's boundless. Notice he points out the dimensions there. He throws out these dimensions. The breadth and length and height and depth of his love. Try and plumb those depths. Try and measure. Try and try and draw a line around draw a line around Christ's love. Try and find where it ends. It doesn't. But you should try. You should try and pursue that because the more you do that, the more you will see, man, it keeps going. And the more you try, it keeps going. It's out there. He's praying for them that they may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints the breadth and length and height and depth. It requires God's work in us for us to, to grow it and comprehend even what it's like. It's such a big task. It's such a big measurement that it requires divine intervention in our minds in order to, to accomplish it. It takes God's work in us. It's huge. It's huge. It is boundless. Love of Christ is boundless. It's also unfathomable. I love how he says, I pray that, uh, that you may be strengthened to comprehend with all the saints what's the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. How are we supposed to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge? How are we supposed to measure it when it, when it surpasses knowledge? I think that's part of his point. The more you look at it, the more you find. Now, does that mean it is unknowable? Is it unknowable? Can we just not comprehend it? Nah, I can't even, I can't even think about it. No, it's knowable, but it's enormous. And so we can know more about his love for us. And then we learn more about his love for us. And then we dig into his word more and we learn even more and we're astounded. And then we get, get in relationship with people and we start loving them and learning from them. And we learn that it's even bigger. It keeps growing. It keeps growing. It's unfathomable. You never get to the end of it. It surpasses knowledge. You're not going to get to the, to the, the last paragraph in your paper and, and write the end. And then you've, you've, you learned it all. You know, Christ's love, of course not. The more you explore it, the more there is there. Christ's love is at the very center of the Christian experience. It's boundless and it's unfathomable. And then listen to this in verse 19, the second half of verse 19. This is the third part of his prayer. The third part of his prayer, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is like a summary of what's come before. 
This is like a restatement or a climax. Kind of the, the two previous points are building towards this one. This is how he summarizes what he's talking about here. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. You'll see in your outline there that we're already full. Look over to Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 says this. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every blessing, every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He's already blessed us with it. And then look just down a little bit. Verses 22 and 23. And he put all things under his feet and gave him as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So in a very real sense, we are already full with all the fullness of God. But there's also a different, very real sense in which we are not yet full. Okay, I'm not trying to be coy here. This is in the same book. Chapter 4, turn over to Ephesians 4, verses 11 through 13. So I already said we're, we're already full. We've been given every spiritual blessing, right? We're already full. And we read in 4, 11 through 13, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. So there's a sense in which there's still something left to be filled. We're already full, but there's, there's something left. There's a filling, an ongoing experiential life application in your own heart, filling that can continue to go on. So in the same epistle we read, in some ways we're already full. And yet in other ways we're not yet full. What we certainly have, though, is the opportunity for maturing. For maturing. You see, we're, we're stuck in an interesting place. I've mentioned this before. Certain things are already true of us. And yet they're not fully true of us yet. There's an already and a not yet is what the, well, the way the scholars refer to it. There are things that are true of us by definition of who we are, and yet we've not walked in them yet. We've not seen them in our own lives yet. We've not grown into them yet. There's still some growing to be done. Amazing things have been done for us. Amazing things are true of us because of what Christ has done. And yet in our lives, in our walk, we need to put feet on those things to see them. We need to grow up into those things, even though they're already true. There's, a, there's an already and a, and a not yet because we're stuck in this place where the kingdom of God has come in our hearts. We're Christians, and yet the end of the world is not here yet. And so there's this interim period that we're stuck in. Things are not yet realized as they ought to be. They're not yet realized in us as they ought to be. And so there's an opportunity here for maturing, for maturing in our own lives. And this is really the climax of this whole thing. The, the passage here is this, this maturing process. And this is why it comes to my mind, and this is why I studied this for the purpose of concluding here our discipleship study, is that look at the work 
that God has done. Look at, look up in your outline. Point one is about the strengthening that he provides. The strengthening that he provides that, that is in accordance with his riches. It fits with his riches. It's according to it. It's massive. It's not just a little tiny dose to get you through the day. He has supplies that are enormous and he gladly gives them. So that's the first part there. Look, what God has done for us, this strength that he offers. And as you're discipling someone, and as I'm growing as a disciple, the more I focus on that, the more I, I learn how much God wants to do in my life. And I don't just mean provide a new vehicle. I don't just mean, uh, you know, those sorts of do things for me, give me a nicer house or, or, or whatever. I don't, I, don't, I don't mean that. I mean working to bring about his fruit in my life, like we looked at in John 15. That's the kind of strength that he provides. That's what, that's what he wants to give us is his true inner strength. So that's the first part that we can meditate on, think about in our own discipleship and as we're discipling other people. And what's the second part? The second part that we think about is the massive love of Christ for us. Can't measure it. Dwell on it. So in my own maturing, in my own life, in my own uh, walk with the Lord, try to think about, spend your time dwelling on, meditating on how much Christ loves us, what exactly he's done for us. This is what Paul is praying for these Ephesian believers. He says it takes God's help. His love is so big. The more we meditate on it, the more we think about what he's done, the more we will grow in Christ's likeness. The more we will become like him in our lifestyle, we'll become like him in our hearts. This is an enormous part of what it means to grow as a disciple, and that's why we're finishing with it. It's a big, big deal. The more I think about Christ's love, in my Christian life, the more I'm struck by how unlovable I am. I don't deserve the, the offering that he made for me. I don't deserve it. And the more I grow in my Christian life, like Paul, the more I see more clearly my sin and how much I don't deserve it. And yet his love is there. And yet he agrees to strengthen me, to grow me, to develop me in my character and my life. The more I think about that, the more I grow. So I wanted to give us just something we could hold on to and walk away with at the end of all of this discipleship time. The discussion that we've had for all these months, something we could take and we could run with. And I think it's this right here. As you're discipling other people and as you're growing in your own life, think about, dwell upon the love of Christ for you and the offer of strengthening that he gives. Think about that. And as you look to people around you, encourage them about that. Look into his word and find out more about it. The more you look into his word, the more you see our need for it. 
Focusing on and seeking to comprehend Christ's love is central to our continued maturing as disciples. The greatest expression of that love is found in the cross. And so we're here today. It's Communion Sunday, the Lord's Supper. And so we're going to remind ourselves. And maybe that's why the Lord instituted the Lord's Supper for us. So that we would celebrate it frequently. We would celebrate his love frequently. So that we would meditate on his love as a group frequently. That we would be reminded again and again of his love for us. So if I could have the men who are going to serve, come on down.